Hello and welcome to the Mundane Truth Podcast. We are a weekly podcast that sheds light on wrongful convictions, prison news, resources to help prisoners, and so much more. Always remember, the truth, it never changes. And the fight for justice should be eternal. Do you have a business, service, or product that you want to get out to the world? Are you trying to build a new business and need more hands on deck? Tired of the same website or logo and need a new one? If you've answered yes to any of these, we have the solution for you. ELI Solutions is a creative agency that enjoys helping people to grow, develop, and build their million-dollar brand. Contact us today at myelisolutions.org. Hey, beautiful people. This is Natalie, a.k.a. Sage. I'm getting cozy in the Midwest with Mundane Truth. It's great to be here once again. I'm on the show tonight and with a very important, very diligent, level-headed person. I took the time to know his story and find out about him, but I feel it's good to also have that visual and physical sense in a person uh, compared to, like, biographies. So I feel like when a person speaks to you, that's that's another thing too. So with that being said, I would like to welcome Sadiq to the show. Welcome, Sadiq. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Like I said, I, I really enjoy uh, East Coast accents. You know, New York, Jersey, Maryland, all of them. I really enjoy those accents. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, you got a Are lot of born it tonight. In- all right now. Are you uh, born and raised in Jersey, or were you born somewhere else? No, I was born and raised in New Jersey. Actually, Hackensack, New Jersey. That's about nine minutes outside of Manhattan, Harlem, right across the George Washington Bridge. Wow. Okay. All right. So everybody wants to know about you. We want to know your background. You know, where you're, you know, of course you said New Jersey, but we want to hear about your upbringing. So tell us a little bit about you. Who is Sadiq? Well, I grew up in New Jersey. Like I said, I went to elementary school and stuff out of New Jersey. But because I was so close to Manhattan and the George Washington Bridge, I began to hustle out of New York. So I lived the street life out of New York and then went back home to New Jersey at night. And that went on for a while until I caught some time in New York State. And unfortunately, I served the greater part of my life in prison until I realized that, you know, prolonged prison stays destroy the mind. So uh, I came up hustling in the 80s, hustling during the crack era. Uh, I was known for being a stick-up kid. I never ran with no particular crew. I was really like a freelancer, so to speak. I did my own thing. I wouldn't say I was a drug dealer. I ended up doing more robberies than anything until things escalated until I started committing armed robberies and ultimately bank robberies, in which I just finished serving a 25-year sentence on bank robberies. I served my 85%, which was 21 years and six months, and I'm currently on house arrest. I've been in a halfway house. Now I've got 30 more days on home confinement, and then I'll be uh, released to five years parole for the federal system. I traveled throughout the United States, man, based on this, you know, because they got prisons all over. So I've been around the United States during my prison time. But most importantly, it's really not about who I was. 
most importantly is about who I became through my experience through the prison. Like I said, man, that prolonged stays in prison can destroy your mind. But I always kept in mind something that Malcolm X said. Malcolm X said that penitentiaries would become universities to young blacks. If nothing else he ever said stuck with me, that stuck with me more than anything I ever heard him say. And as a result, I used my prison time as a university. So anyone, such as myself, if I've been in jail two years, I should have the educational equivalency of an associate's degree. If I've been in prison four years, I should have the educational equivalency of a bachelor's, six years a master's, eight years a doctor's. So I ended up using my time, man, in its proper context. And I'm out here to show the world that. And it's good to have you here as well. And it's, I feel like in a way you became like a Malcolm X, you know, if you, if I've read about him and I've been studying him actually since I was eight years old and he actually wrote or read the entire dictionary, you know, and I feel like right. a lot of people intimidated by that level of intelligence, a black man in the 1940s in prison, he did make prison that university, you know, he studied and he, he changed, you know, he transitioned into a different person, into a higher being. And that's what I'm hearing from you as well. You became a higher being. Yeah, I, you know, I'd like to say, you know, and I hate to sound philosophical, but, you know, I'd like to say that I am a higher being. You know, I'm a human, but I'm having a spiritual experience, you know, and being able to connect everything and to be able to put things in proper context. You know, uh, one of the things that I did, realize in prison is that they spent more of the prison's budget on recreation than they did education. And when I look at the word recreation, I see the word recreation. And through constant recreation, whether or not it's football, basketball, baseball, I'm talking about with lifers, with guys with 280 years, guys with 50 years, even guys with 25 years, they spend a lot of time in recreation. And that recreation is recreating somebody, is recreating somebody into other than those who would the height to their own potential. So I tried to stay away from a lot of that, and I tried to recreate my own self, not through recreation, but through education. You know, and I began to read many, many books of those who somewhat mirrored my life, and they helped me place man life and living in the proper context and perspective. I fell in love with African history, financial literacy, mm-hmm. African psychology. Um, <clears throat> I became known for creating curriculums, teaching classes, holding events where I was a keynote speaker. I helped create, along with my man Sly Green, Donald Sly Green, a legal team called The Firm. And The Firm was responsible for helping a lot of people not only learn the law, but come up under their life sentences or their extended prolonged stays in prison through the teaching of law. Um, I was a director of a reentry program called the Bridge to Reentry, where I taught classes. Uh, I was a clerk for a psychologist under a skills program, which is a one-of-a-kind system in the entire federal system, um, highly recognized by the United States District Courts, federal courts. Um, 
and it was designed to help those that suffered from cognitive disorders or brain injuries. You know, I was a GED tutor. So I always tried to surround myself, man, in the educational circles because I knew that once I got released from prison after doing almost 25 years, I realized, man, that the world was going to be changed. Therefore, I had to be changed. All of those that cared for me and raised me and supported me throughout my journey, such as my mother, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, most of them after 25 years, man, in prison had passed off. I came out and only one of my aunts remained. She's the matriarch of my family. And uh, like I told you earlier, man, I was really bent on making my family really proud of me in spite of their not being here. I couldn't let their sacrifices and their struggles and their pains be in vain. I had to make sure that I made an indelible impression before I left here with the rest of my family. And that was important. That was a key factor to me that kept me in those educational circles. Man, you know, I, I really I really feel that. And it just makes me really happy to call somebody as you who is so enlightening to have been through what you've been through. And your family is proud of you on the other side. They're watching over you. They're with you always. So a man of so much integrity and wisdom, like what advice do you have to the younger kids who are into the street life or or do you see yourself in those kids? What can you tell them? Well, actually, actually, I've dealt with a lot of youth. I created a lot of youth programs while I'm in prison. And one of the things I did, I always tried to fashion myself in a way where I treated other people's children, sons in particular, because I was in men penitentiaries, is that I tried to treat them in a way that I would want someone to treat my son had he found himself in that situation, to be in prison. So I didn't want to be the predator. I didn't want to be the bully. I wanted to be the father figure, the men that were fatherless because of the choices that they made, because of their predicament. And as a result, I grew into that role, and it stuck. Um, So my advice to the younger people is that we really can't push a man up a ladder. If you're not willing to go, then you can't expect people to stay where you're at. However, I'll meet you where you're at, but you have to understand that it's about climbing the ladder in order to get to the top or climbing out of the hole that we've created for ourselves. So we have to try to empower the youth. A lot of our youth are, I don't want to say lost. I think this is one of the greatest generations that was ever produced. They are extremely fiery. They are energetic. However, they're just being misguided because of the information that they've been exposed to. But some of the youth that I've dealt with over the years, some of these guys have been coming home and become entrepreneurs, which was one of the reasons why I've been able to get what I've been able to get since I've been released. They came home and they stuck to a plan. They came home empowered. They came home changed. They came home determined. And they empowered me. They helped me become more determined. So my advice to them is that you got to be willing to climb up the ladder because no one can push you up the ladder. Mm. Best advice I've ever heard. Best advice given. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know. 
So maybe this is, like, sort of uh, irrelevant, but, like, you said that you've been in prison over 20 years, and I know comes the, the evolution of the thousands. Do you think that there is a difference, like, in the mindset that young people had in the 90s versus the thousands? And if so, what is that? Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things I see is that coming up in the 80s and the 90s, we were more ambitious. We did some crazy things to acquire material things. But most of those material things were to take care of our children, to take care of our relationships, to take care of our status. But nevertheless, we had ambition for more. Nowadays, I really don't see that ambition in these youth now. See them risking 25 years in prison for killing, for selling drugs, um, for, I mean, for what? I don't know. For street fame, for street credibility. I'm really not sure where they're going with it because as I begin to wind down on doing my time and seeing this new wave of youth coming in, a lot of their crimes were really senseless and small. And I know that the the system is designed to give out extended periods of time to the young black because they want to do away with our youth. However, I can't really finger what was on their mind at the time they did their crimes because of how small and how petty they were. I just can't wrap my mind around it. So there is a difference. I think they lack that ambition for higher goals and ideals even in doing wrong. They're coming to jail without owning houses, coming to jail without owning new cars, coming to jail without starting a business, coming to jail without having a wife, they having baby mamas. You know, so I'm really trying to find out why were you even in the game? (laughs) True. You know? I agree with that. but, But nevertheless, I still dealt with them. I still try to give them a new perspective, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and those that were still bent on coming home to do crime, I tried to give them an exit strategy because, once again, you can't push a man up a ladder. So when I knew that they were coming home to commit more crimes, whether or not through selling drugs or committing fraud or whatever the crime was, at least have an exit strategy. All right, I'm going to give them to get this amount of money, and I'm going to do this so I don't have to continue down this road. Because that road is only going to lead to one or two places, either prison or death. There's no longevity in that. There's no real success in that. So you've got to have an exit strategy. And I created a curriculum designed for an exit strategy. For those that want to okay. get money and get out the game, we need to have the exit strategy. Mm. That says a lot right there. I really like that. Appreciate you. And what can you, no problem, the exit strategy, we definitely need to get more into that too. And and also I wanted to know, because I was reading about how while you were in prison, you've actually helped people. You've actually helped people who've had life sentences. Um, so I wanted to know, like, what you can tell us about the firm and how the legal system works in regarding to helping people with harsh sentences. I think what we're witnessing now is that case in which they call in legal jargon where the tail wags the dog. 
it's really not that many people are wrongly convicted, which there many are, but it's more so that the sentence exceeds the crime. So you have the conviction comes first, and then you have the sentence. But what's happening is the sentence is outweighing the crime. So that in legal jargon, they say that's the tail wagging the dog. And we see a lot of that there. So what we try to do is, because it's more difficult to attack someone's conviction, because 97% of the people in the feds pled guilty, and they had to make a factual basis for their plea, which means they had to get before a judge and say, listen, I did this. But the sentence was um, disproportionate to the crime. So now they want to try to appeal their sentence and not necessarily the conviction. So what the firm did was the firm created strategies in which we can attack sentences and get people with reduced sentences to somewhat be proportionate to the crime. Um, We taught classes. In order for us to take your case, you had to take the class because we had to make sure that you knew something about the law. We just didn't want to be responsible for getting you back down the court where they appoint a court appointed a lawyer for you, and we wouldn't be there. And now you can't defend yourself or either guide and assist your lawyer in your own defense. So in order for us to take your case, we made it mandatory for you to take a class in legal research with the firm, and the firm would take up your case. Now, there are those that had wrong convictions, and we challenged those. One of the firm's expertise was really, or my expertise in the firm, was those major cases like the Kingpin Statute, which is the 848, or the RICO Enterprise Statute, which is uh, racketeering, or either what they call the Vicar. Vicar is the violent crime in aid of racketeering. Those are the cases that I specialize in because those are usually the mafia cases, the kingpin cases, and that somebody needed to dive into that because some overzealous prosecutors was able to put those charges and those labels on individuals that were just neighborhood friends and give them life sentences without the possibility of parole. And I knew that was unfair. I knew it was unjust. These are people labeled as kingpin that still lived in the projects, that don't own any property, never seen a million dollars. So I took my time to learn all of these statutes that were being imposed on people in poverty. I got a problem when we talk about there's a war on crime, there's a war on poverty, there's a war on ignorance. No, a war is never waged on a concept. Wars are always waged, and in every war, people are the casualties. So I had a problem with that, and I understand that a lot of us may have bought into that, but I realized, man, that this war on crime was a disguise for war on people that were in poverty, that were ignorant, and that did commit crimes. So I wanted to try to assist them, man, the best way I could in clearing that smoke swing. So the firm is alive and well still. We're still doing work. We're still getting people out of jail. And as we speak, I'm still working on motions from my laptop. I'm still getting calls from the feds to help me out. When we speak about my partner, Kenny McGriff, Supreme, on my way out, my last two weeks in prison, I sat in my cell and I hand wrote 
through motions for him. And uh, this is on my way out. Now, keep in mind that I'm really um, going through my own mental issues about being released and who's going to be there, who's not going to be there, where am I going to start at, and so forth and so on. But I still made sure, man, that I took on one of the most complicated cases to this date, a death row case. And in filing his motions in particular, um, we were right. I seen some errors in there, major errors with his conviction as well as his sentence. And the judge wrote back in response to his motion that Kenneth Supreme was correct in his legal argument, but the judge is declining to exercise his discretion at this time. When they came out with the first step back, man, people failed to realize that although you may be entitled to it, it's up to the judge's discretion to exercise that discretion in applying the first step back. So even if you got it coming, he don't have to give it to you. And that was the case that uh, Supreme is dealing with now. The judge acknowledged that he was right and he deserves a sentence reduction, again, because the dog wags the tail or the tail wags the dog, and he's declining his discretion to give him a sentence reduction. So that's one of the things that we're dealing with. And, again, we're dealing with his conviction also. So the firm is well, live and well. We're doing what we do. Very good. I'm very, very happy to hear that. Very happy to hear that. And I'm just very intrigued. So I guess the way that I would like to put this is, because I thought about what you said, like we have families going to prison. Uh, I myself have had family members in prison. So what advice would you give to the mother or the father who has a child in prison? I know one thing for sure, that for every mother and father that has someone in prison, it's hard on them because they have to come to grips in terms with their baby, the one that they taught to be good, to do the right thing, to be respectable and honorable, has got caught up in a system that has no mercy, that caught up in a system that is beyond the control of the mother and father. Um, so that's, first of all, I know that's very hard on any parent to have to deal with. We believe that everyone has at least one good book in them. You are the author of your own life. If you have written, written a book and need assistance with self-publishing by editing, formatting, or even a book cover design, we can help. We can also assist with ghostwriting, writing classes, and more. Contact us today at anotherchancemedia.org. There's really no advice that you can give them because they've done all that they could have done to prevent them from getting to that stage. Every person is where they are by virtue of their own thoughts, good or bad. So what I would have to say is that it's more so the family structure in general. It's not just up to the mother and the father. It's up to the mother, the father, the sister, the brother, the cousins, and the friends to be supportive of those that's in jail. We just can't leave our loved ones up to the ill fate of their captors. They need mm. help because it's, because it's beyond control. It's beyond the control of the individual that's caught in the trap, and it's beyond the control of the individuals 
that's connected to them on the outside. So we have to learn how to create a bridge um, between the inside and the outside where we can support each other in that. We don't only need financial support. We need emotional support. We need spiritual support. We need social support because there's many people that's trapped behind these walls and these gates and these bars that don't have that support. They can't make phone calls. They can't go to commissary. They can't communicate through letters with anybody because people believe that once you make a bad decision that you end up in prison and you deserve it. And that's not the case because a person is not their decisions. A person finds themselves in a situation that is the result of their decisions, but they are not their decisions. The only difference between those on the outside and those on the inside is that decision. The people on the outside was once out here. I mean, the people on the outside are the people that go to prison. Everybody in prison came from outside. So at some point, someone outside makes a bad decision that lands them in prison. So the only thing that distinguishes the two is who made that bad decision first. And people make bad decisions every day. That's why they keep going to prison. That's why the prisons stand full. So we really can't attribute that to the individual himself because I don't believe anything is innately evil. Is essentially evil in and of itself, personally. However, I think that the choices that you make may be evil, may be wrong, may be bad, may be harmful to others that we deem evil. But that's not the individual because the individual can make a bad choice today and regret it tomorrow. But where's the, where's the support in this realization that I made a bad decision? Where's this confirmation that although I made a bad decision, I'm still a good person? So if you leave a person to his decision and believe a person is his decision, then unfortunately, man, we leave him in a situation where he becomes recreated through recreation because the recreation becomes his escape in prison because he wonders why his baby mama left him, why his mother can't support him because she's living off of a fixed income why his father can't support him because he's been doing time before the sun court time or he's not alive or where's his friends at that's catching time. So he's really thinking that, man, maybe I am my decision. And I try to help brothers realize, man, you are not the decision that you made, man. You are much more than that. And just like you made a bad decision, you can make good decisions. I just try to help brothers along with their thinking process and putting life and living in a proper perspective. So if I was to give any advice to the families, it is to be as supportive as possible for brothers that are making the change. Now, them fools that's not making the change, those fools that don't want to change, for them people that don't want to take the first step in climbing that ladder, then you got to leave them where they at or meet them where they at. You can't waste you know, a whole lot of time with those that don't want it. You are so right. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I sure do. And I feel like you're a great, like you're 
what you've been through is a great representation. Like, I feel like that you are the model transitioner. You didn't allow prison time or the things that you've done in the past to make that who you are. You know, you've actually done a lot with your life. And I've also heard that you have your own trucking business. You have your own business with a truck, with trucking. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I started what they call on-the-move trucking, O-N-A-M-O-V-E. And when I came home, I realized that I would be in my 50s. I realized that those that raised me and supported me throughout my journey were no longer here. I knew I didn't have any more finances after doing almost a quarter century in prison. So whatever dime I got my hands on, whatever help I was able to muster, I said, man, listen, I can't go out here and buy the Gucci and the Louis, and I can't just look the part and not be the part. So I decided to, man, I said, man, I really can't do this entry-level pay thing, $10 an hour, $13 an hour, and expect to retire off of that. Now, some people can come out here and make a living doing that, but that just wasn't me because of the lifestyle in which I came from. And I didn't want to go begging these people for a job and then going through all these denials. So I said, whatever money I can get my hands on, whatever money I can save up, I have to go into a business that will provide for me. So I ended up getting F three fifty, a Ford F three fifty, and a forty eight foot car carrier, which hauls three cars at a time. Then I got an F one fifty. Then I got a, a Cadillac truck. Um, and I said to myself, man, I got to be able to buy assets opposed to liabilities. And, and in a nutshell, assets are things that put money in your pocket, while liabilities are things that take money outside the pocket. So I said, you know what, i got to put all of my money in the assets and hope that my assets, man, make money for me to pay for my liabilities, to pay for the car that I finance, to pay for my apartment that I rent, to pay for my bills that I utilize. And as a result, man, I was able to do that. However, because of the limitations that I'm I'm unable to fully get out there and explore those options and make the kind of money that I desire to make because of the limitations. Fortunately, I'll be off home confinement within the next 30 days, and then I can really branch out a little more. But it's been an uh, extremely difficult transition financially in regards to that. But I made sure every dime I got initially went towards the starting of this trucking company that I was sure would generate money, real capital. So I went out there, I tested the waters, I made several runs for a couple of months, and I was really excited about the money. But then when they had took the monitor off and put the monitor back on, I had to stop that. So now Mm -hmm. I'm just waiting out the 30-day period, and I'm going to get into it after the 30 days is up in November. And uh, it was good. But I realized, I said to myself, I said, Sadiq, if you blow this money on liabilities, things that you want to keep paying for, things that's going to keep taking money out of your pocket, you're not going to be able to replace this money. Now you're going to be in a situation where you're going to have to enter an entry-level paying job. And then I can't live off of that. That would have been impossible. So I said, man, right. listen, you've got to be strong enough you got to be disciplined enough and purchase these assets. So that's what I did. 
I purchased these assets that would make money for me. And now I got all of the power pieces, the power components in play, in place, so that now when the opportunity provides itself, I can just move forward with it. And that's what a lot of us have to realize. You have to buy things that make you money. You can't buy things that don't make you no money. The things that you buy that make you money can buy you the things that don't make you money. But if you're out there buying things that don't make you money, then that's what you're working for. I don't want to be able to work for money. I want my money to work for me. So I purchased a couple of assets, and I encourage all those mm-hmm. that come home to do the same. Purchase stuff that make money so you don't have to work too hard for money. I really like that. I really do like your philosophy, and I also meant to say this in the beginning. I wanted to say welcome home and congratulations. I wanted to say that for reaching that place of uh, elevation and spirituality. You're a very, very wise man. Thank you. I'm learning still. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm growing. Uh, but As I'm we enjoying are. my newfound freedom. I'm enjoying my newfound freedom, and uh, I'm just loving my peace. I'm loving it. You know, Good a lot of you. times people people ask me, you know, if there was anything that you would have changed in your journey, what would it have been? And I jokingly mm-hmm. say a lot of times it would be my socks more often. But on a serious note, if I had any regrets and if there's anything that I wish I could have changed, I would have not wanted to hurt so many people by having them watch me go through what I went through unnecessarily because it's hard for a parent to watch their child go through what I went through and had I only listened. And I know that so many other parents are experiencing the same thing. They're telling their child the right thing to do. They're giving them all the things that they're desiring they're doing what they're supposed to do as good parents. But because they make a bad decision, they can end up in a place that is dark, that is uncontrollable. And that's bad on a parent, and it hurts the parent. So I wish I just really wouldn't have had to hurt my parents and those that loved me and that were connected to me in that way. But other than that, my journey was a hell of a journey because I helped so many people along the way. And in turn, I helped myself. And you made it to the other side. I made it. I'm healthy. No cancers, no diabetes, no high blood pressure. I done gained a little weight now. I done gained a little weight, but, you know, (laughs) but I'm here. I can work on that. (laughs) I can work on that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I can work on that. Absolutely. You know? Like I said, you know, you reach that place of elevation. Your mind is clear. You could do anything. Sure. You know, um, one of the things that I desire to continue to do while I'm out here is to continue to serve people because you can't save a people unless you serve a people, nor can you love a people unless you live for a people. And as a people that love African people or who we call African descendants, I understand that. I understand that you can't love them if you don't live for them, and you can't save them if you don't serve them. So I want to try to always find something in which I can do to serve us as a particular people. Even my trucking business, man, is all black, owned and operated. 
my cause is all black and driven by a black man. You know, so I want to try to be able to assist those that are going to be deemed as a disenfranchised, those that's going to have to enter these entry-level jobs and be turned down for employment, turned down for housing, turned down for certain benefits. No, these doors need to be opened by us, for us. And so that's part of my service. You know, those that's still behind the wall left, I still want to be strongly connected to the firm. I still want to do a lot of that stuff. But one of the things that I had to go through first, and it was kind of bitter, was I was happy to get out here. I was happy to stay in touch. But it was an emotional roller coaster ride for me because I entered into a world in which, again, those that raised me, those that trained me in my journey, I'm talking about my mother, my grandparents, my aunts, they were no longer here. So for me to come back out into a world without that support, that emotional and social support was extremely critical, extremely critical for me, devastatingly difficult for me to have to face that for the first time, stepping out of prison after doing all of that time, making all these accomplishments, and no Mm -hmm. one was there at the door. That was like a really emotional earthquake for me. That Believe it or not, it took about a month for me to go over that. I went through some things. I went through some meltdowns. I went through some shutdowns. I had to put that whole thing in perspective and push through it. I couldn't let it take me all the way down. But it rocked my world somewhat. And many brothers that do a lot of time after giving back them life sentences, their mothers couldn't hang on. You know, they're going to go through the same thing. But it's all right to go through something, to get to something. Because men do cry in the dark. Don't get that twisted. We do yes. cry in the dark. So I had to end up going through through that. That was something that nobody prepared me for. Nobody shared, shared any light on that. Nobody shared any words of wisdom for that. That was something that I had to deal with in the raw. Um, so I want to be there for brothers that come home. I want to be there to pick certain brothers up. I want to be there to let them know, listen, I've gone through that. I'm a forerunner of this, you know. Uh, I'm one of the real ones that been there and done that for real on every level, and I'm not afraid to share that with you, with anybody. Snap, snap, snap. <laughs> you feel me? Yes. You feel me? And I thank you for giving me the platform to share that. Not a problem. We're so glad to have you on, like, your – I mean, your deepness, your level of deepness is so surreal right now. Like, I, I just can't believe it. <laughs> it's all real, though. So let me, Everything is real. I know. Oh, I know. I can feel it. <laughs> now, let me ask you, because I know that you mentor a lot of people. Now, currently, do you have any mentors? That's a good question. And believe it or not, I do. My mentors, and I don't like to use that word mentor, uh, my uh, my teachers, believe it or not, my teachers are those that I left behind, struggling behind that wall, that maintain a certain degree of dignity, that maintain a, a degree of principality, that maintain a degree of um, hope, 
and maintain a degree of elevation in spite of their circumstances. Imagine waking up without a date to go home because a life sentence is really a death sentence. They don't let you out on a life sentence unless you're dead. So it's really a death sentence. And for you to wake up principled, for you to wake up on morals, for you to wake up with dignity and pride and still helping and serving and loving, those brothers are my mentors. Those brothers that call out here, man, and tell me, man, I'm still going through it. I'm still pushing on based on what you shared with me. I'm still holding on to our last conversation. I remember our last laugh. Those are the ones that keep me guided because I can still, although I hear their reality, I also hear their pain. I also hear their cries, and that helps mentor me. That's the deep. You got to stay focused. You got to stay strong. You have to stay supportive to these individuals. These individuals are counting on you. I have a younger brother that's also my co-defendant, and he he got the bad end of the stick. Instead of getting sentenced to 25 years, he got sentenced to 29 years. He's on his way home now. He got about 30 more months left. And I remember when I spoke with him for the first time and Donald Sly Green for the first time, I wasn't expected to have a major meltdown the way I did on the phone, and they did too. When when I talked to my brother for the first time in 21 years on this side and he's on that side, Heartbreaking. Hello? Yeah. There was was no words to explain that. To leave some of them brothers behind and speak to them for the first time while you on this side and they on that side, it was rough. And it's still rough. It's still rough. But you know that you got to be there. You got to be your best while you out here. You got to keep climbing. You got to keep pushing. You got to understand, man, that your best, your worst day out here is better than your best day in there. So you'll never hear me say, man, it's hard out here. It's rough out here. Man, this is crazy. I need to go pick up the bag, et cetera, et cetera. It ain't none of that because, I think that would be the worst letdown on any of them. Man, Dick, you came back to prison. You know what we're going through. You know what we need. We need that outreach. We need that support. We need you to order our books. We need you to send these pictures. We need you to hear our cries. You know, so a lot of times when brothers get released from the jails, we don't speak about the hardcore realities of what you left behind because it's easier to forget it. Nah, you can't forget that, man, because a lot of us came to prison and became a man. It's like forgetting your mother. You came from that set and that created you. That was like a womb for you. Think about it. It's a cell. All life form comes from a cell. Amoebas, cellular. We came from a cell. 
So that cell should have gave you life. That cell should have created you. That cell should have a, that cell should have allowed you to grow into something different than what you went in as. So as a result, man, you know, we just have to try to be the best that we can be after going through that experience. We can't glamorize. We can't glamorize none of that stuff because it caused too much pain in reality. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What kind of uh, books are you reading, or, like, do you find, like, any spare time to read at this time, like, now that you've transitioned out? It's funny that you're saying this because I'm sitting at my desk right now, and I have about, I want to say about 50 books surrounding me. <laughs> As we, for real, as we speak, man, Powernomics, Second Chance, Financial Freedom, Abundance, to educate the people, the introduction of African civilization, the falsification of African consciousness, start your own business, bold, how to day trade for a living, grant writing, social media marketing, currency trading, uh, freight broker, business, uh, world currency, you name it. You name it. It's, it's here. Solitary. You name it. And it's all about reading. Actually, man, you know, one of my greatest personalities in history was uh, George Jackson. George Jackson mm-hmm. was one of the original Black Panthers that ended up coming up, and he did a lot of time in prison. And one of the brothers that I communicate with regularly, his name is Jalil Muntakim, Anthony Bottom. He was one of the BLA Black Liberation Army members that broke off from the Black Panther Party because of some issues uh, with Huey P. Newton at the time. And he was working on a project with George Jackson when he caught his case back in, like, 1973. He recently came home. He's original Black Panther, Jalil Munther King, Anthony Bottom. And um, George Jackson happened to be an individual that came to jail with a one-year sentence and ended up dying in prison catching a lot of time and ended up dying in prison. But he was considered the field marshal for the Black Panther Party. He wrote a lot of books like The Blood in My Eyes and um, several other books. But these books really enlightened me because he spoke the hard realities of prison life, the emotional up and downs, um, the psychological up and downs. He, he spoke to this truth, I mean, relentlessly. He didn't hold back. He didn't, man, he didn't water it down. He spoke a bold truth, and I kind of, like, gravitated to him. But not only did I look at him as one of my teachers and putting this prison thing in context, but most of the historians that I read from, I read their books as though they were letters to me because it made it more personal. I know these people took their time to write these books, in hopes that people would read them and that it affect their lives. So once I understood the credentials of these individuals, I was able to accept their readings and their writings personally as though they were talking to me. I began to inculcate that. 
I began to take that stuff in personally, and I allowed that stuff to transform who I became today. A lot of my writers. That's amazing. Where do you see yourself three to five years from now? Like, if you could think of any long-term goals, what would that be? Oh, wow. Good question. You know, I hate to sound facetious in the least, but I'm definitely one that wants to make a lot of money. However, I understand that the best way to make a lot of money is if you serve a lot of people. So I want to be able to create different businesses that can serve as much as our community as we possibly can, and as a result, I can make as much money as I possibly can. Because without that money, I can't build. I can't help. I can't support without no money. When people call out here for books, when people call out here for money, when people call out here to get their children gifts, I can't support them if I don't have money. So I want to be able to generate a lot of money. So I would like to see myself as an entrepreneur within the next three years. Mm-hmm. Five years, everything that I've ventured off into in the next three years coming to its full fruition or on the way to its full fruition. Five years. Everything yeah. should be well greased and oiled. That's not far off. Three years should start everything in the direction mm-hmm. that I intend to go. Five years, it should be up and going, and then I should be able to sit back and add on to it and benefit from it. Ten years from what now, is your zodiac so sign? I'm curious. <laughs> You're curious about my zodiac sign? <laughs> Very curious. I'm an Aquarius. I- I'm an Aquarius. Aquarius. You hear what I was thinking? I was thinking either a Capricorn or Scorpio. <laughs> uh, Aquarius. Yeah, Aquarius are more humanitarian oriented. Yeah. They're the water barriers. Everything in existence needs the water barrier. Can't nothing live without that water. So I try to sustain people. I try my best to sustain people through service because I know that that's what they need. There's never a day that goes by where I don't get a call from the prison. Never. Not one day has went by where I don't get not only one, but several calls a day. And I enjoy that because I know what they're calling out here for. They need that water that the Aquarius carry, and it's all right. They can get that. I got that for them. But, again, you got to stay focused. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to keep the water clean. You got to keep the water clean, though. You, you sure do. Clean. You can't feed them no dirty water. You know? Okay. You're right about that. You know what I mean? Got to keep them clean water. Yep. I like that. That's that life energy, that Aquarius, you know, whatever they pour out yes. there is, is it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, I kind of find it ironic, and I just want to say something with respect to a quote that James Baldwin gave. He said, if a white man screams, give me liberty or give me death, he's applauded. The whole world applauds him. But if a brother or sister screams the same exact words, he's labeled a terrorist or revolutionary. I got a problem with that. You feel me? And I got a problem with that because what you're trying to do with this particular platform is 
help brothers establish their freedom. Right. And a lot of people may not necessarily agree with that because they believe if you did the crime, you should do the time, not understanding that the tail is wagging the dog or that the system was rigged or is unjust and is prejudicial and is institutionally racist. With people don't really understand those particular concepts, they don't really want to support this type of platform. But nevertheless, at some point, it is bound to hit home. Because like I said on the last podcast, that America is only 5% of the world's population, but, only, but has 25% of the world's prison population, which means that one wow. out of every four people is under some type of judicial restriction. Mm-hmm. One out of every yep. four on the world scale. So that's, that's a lot. So at some point, that's bound to hit home with somebody. And now they're going to be screaming, give me liberty or give me death. But we need to try to create the awareness that, as Martin Luther King said, man, justice denied today is justice denied tomorrow. And that is justice denied here is justice denied everywhere. So I say that to say that people need to be aware that just because it doesn't hit your home today doesn't mean it won't hit it tomorrow. So the right thing to do is to be a freedom-loving person. And I'm not saying that we should be advocates for all prisoners because there's some people that do crimes that should be held accountable for. That's not my point. My point is that you can't give out a capital punishment case for people that commit a nonviolent offense. Life sentences are capital punishments. Mm-hmm. Life sentences are capital punishment. When a death penalty trial has a jury that determines your fate between life or death, they determine your fate with capital punishment, life in prison or death. They're both considered capital punishments. Unfortunately, people think capital punishment is just decapitating the head or putting them to sleep, the death chamber. No, capital punishment. Even life in prison is a capital punishment. You never see right. the light of day. You never see the light of day again. That's the capital punishment. And they're giving that out to us for nonviolent offenses. Who gets a nonviolent offense and get and get a death penalty? So my issue is is that let us not, man, forget about those that have been subjected to a system that never had our interests at heart from the start. There was a time when we lived in ancient Egypt, when we lived in Africa, even modern Africa, the 1500s, the 1400s, Timbuktu, Ghana. I'm talking about the recent African history, where we never even had a word in our language for jail. We never had a word in our language for orphanage. We never had a word in our language for old folks' homes. So we lived in a society based on a justice system that didn't even want us to build jails. Right. Now we're living in a society where it's overpopulated with jails. So I think that we need to be more in tune with what justice is, more in tune with 
law is supposed to represent and apply it equally. Yes. You can't have laws <laughs> in crack and cocaine that are, 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 are an extreme disparity, 100 to 1 crack ratios, because I know that you in a black neighborhood and you smoking crack, that I'm going to make it 100 to 1 ratio. For every gram of crack that you smoke is going to be mm-hmm. equal is 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 going to equal a hundred grams of crack to one gram of coke. You can't do that, knowing that it only affects us in that way, and then give us increased statutory minimum sentences. And they killed us right. with that there. They killed us with that there. They killed us with that there. And many of us men are still lingering in there. I spoke to two individuals today from prison that have had life sentences, and they was both able to successfully give them back as a result on that war on them. Not the war on drugs, but the war on them. So I was glad to mm. see that. But, again, they should have never been up under no life sentence and languished in jail for over 20 years for a nonviolent drug offense. It's unheard of. Wow. It's in the world. It's unheard of. And Sadiq, wow. Like, I know a lot of young people want to reach out to you. Are you on any social media at all, any Facebook or Instagram, YouTube? <laughs> Where can we find you at? Yeah, I'm on there, but I'm on there as my name. My name is R-U-H, and my last name is Asadiq, A-S-S-A-D-I-Q. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. All right, under Rue Asadiq. Hello. Yes, I'm right here. The question was like, do you involve yourself in any spiritual practices? Like, do you pray, meditate? Do you go to church? Absolutely. Very spiritual, um, very prayerful, but unfortunately I don't go to church. Um, I practice an African-centered spiritual system um, known as Ifa, and uh, it keeps me grounded. It keeps me uh, sane, actually. I practice a Yoruba uh, concept known as Ifa which is nothing more than the nature of wisdom. You know, I give reverence to the creator. I give reverence to our ancestors from which we come from. People have to realize that they're genius, and each of us has our own stroke of genius. But our genius comes from your genes. The root word of genius is genes, and your genes are from your predecessors, your ancestors. So a lot of times we give credence to those that don't deserve it, but it comes from our ancestors. So I'm very grateful for those from which I sprang forth from, my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, that has given me the tenacity to push through, the fortitude to continue to go through, um, the vision, the love, the compassion that I have for my people. Uh, so I give a reverence to them. I give a high reverence to them. Um, and I give, man, my commitment, man, to us as the African people caught out here in the diaspora, man, of America, North America, South America, and those of us that don't even know that we are 
actually African, man. We got to deal with that, too. And I'm dealing with yeah. that. You know? Love it. Love it. And, Sadiq, I just wanted to say to you personally, we at we here at Mundane Network, um, you touched us deeply. We really enjoyed you. We loved you on the show. You have been great. And just know that you have our undivided love and support. I really enjoyed that, that this conversation with you, and I really – I really learned a lot, and is there anything that you would like to say? No, all I want to do is just thank y'all, man, for the platform. Thank y'all for choosing me, man, for the interview. And if there's anything else that I can do, I look forward to working with y'all in the future. And I'm just here for y'all, man. Let's do it. Let's get it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. We are are here all the time. I'm pretty sure that there will be a lot more conversations. Um, Maybe one day we could bring somebody on. Um, that you could speak to, and we would really see how that goes. I look forward to that. I really, really do. And once again, thank you all, man. And I hope that I brought the mundane truth today. You sure did. Like I'm Thank you for listening to the Mundane Truth Podcast. This podcast has been produced by the Kenneth Supreme McGriff Support Team. Please subscribe for updates and information on our website at themundanetruth.com.